I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Killer's Cults and Nut Jobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I am, as always, your host, the Great White Snark, Scotty J. And sitting across from me in her virtual reality is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. Oh, she sounded real perky today, folks. Like, I always have to really, like, build that up. You <laughs> really project it? Yeah. Yeah, well, we were we were just talking about different uh, topics we wanted to do before we turned on the uh, turned on the recording. So we were talking about, uh, like, celebrity stockings and um, because it, it all led because Alex Baldwin is, um, or Alec, I should yeah, say. Alec. <laughs> you know, if you're not up on a he he he's getting charged with uh involuntary manslaughter because of that movie a couple of years ago he was on well, last year Rustin. okay yeah helena hutchins because again have to add yeah saw her grave because she's at um hollywood forever right but he's being yeah. brought up on charges for it and, and we were kind of talking about like what movies you know and yeah. That that happened in celebrities celebrities who were killed by their stalkers. Rebecca Schaefer came up. Uh Dominique Dunn that I just that one just popped in my head. Hey, well he was a boyfriend. It wasn't a stalker though. Oh, true. Stalker. Yeah. So if we're going like stalker, it wouldn't be well, that was just a jerk of a boyfriend, <laughs> like put it very mildly. Oh right, but man, she had such a good career ahead of her. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Rebecca Schaefer did ten. Right. Up for the Godfather. That's actually, I think, that's the script she was waiting for. Which, which part? For um the one that, like, Coppola. What's her name? Oh, Sophia. Yeah. The one yeah, she, she did a uh, three. Yeah, she. That's the part she was up for. Oh wow! And also, like Winona Ryder, which I think Winona Ryder would have been. Good tune back, but yeah, I'm, I'm just picturing her as li- better than Sophia Coppola, though. So. Yeah, I'm just picturing um, Winona Ryder as Lydia Dietz from our uh, <laughs> from our Beetlejuice conversation before. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. It's showtime. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna buy that costume one year for Halloween. Great. Hey, I'm like Robert Goulet in it. Oh God, Robert Goulet, man! If, if, uh-huh. You want to talk about the velvet voice, right there, man? Yep, I've met him. I've like I've seen him before. I've actually met him. I mean, that man was on the that man was on the Simpsons. All right. Oh yeah, that was. I met when I was four years old, <laughs> and then when I was in college, I think I was like twenty-one in South Pacific. And he picked me up when I was like four years old. Too. Oh, nice. Yeah, he. Yeah, actually, like, look, you know, held me in like his arms and also. I remember all the women going, "Oh, I'm like, yeah." <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, Robert Goulet did The Simpsons, man. You're top of oh, the. Tr- you're, 
That was a funny one. You're you're mad. You told you to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I want to. I want to pull that one up on Disney Plus later. Oh yeah, on one of the soundtrack albums. Right, but still, God, that. Oh, folks, I needed that laugh because if you guys listened to to the last week's show, which I put out this week because I I was lazy, it was about my father. I've still been dealing with him off and on, so he he's my cross to bear. It. I wish. Well, I wish my brother would deal with him, but no. It, it falls to me. Yeah. All right. All right. So we're back to our regularly scheduled program. We're going back to Leopold and Loeb here. And if you last remember a couple weeks ago, the boys were plotting a kidnapping. More so, you know, Loeb was doing it just to get Leopold off his back. You know, we, we've all been in a relationship where we've had to do something with someone that we didn't want to do because, you know, you know shut them up. <laughs> so, at 11 a.m., the pair went to the rental car place to get the vehicle. Now, they chose a four-door, five-passenger, Will's Night Model 6 touring car that had canvas tops and flaps to cover the back windows. Ooh. You know, that's a nice car back in the day. I think they were all pretty much nice cars back then. Well, right. But I mean, something like this where you can have flaps to cover the back window so you can have some privacy. Uh Uh-huh. So a nice car according to, yeah. And and the the reason... His car was... Right. It was nice. Yeah. They they could have done it in a Model T and, you know... Yeah. Well, you know, the reason why they did... As we said last time, the, the reason why they chose a rental car was because everyone knew their cars in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. if you use an unknown car, yeah, be like I saw him. Right? Yeah, what well, was that, Nathan? No, no, that's not his car. And also, uh, I want to say Leopold's car, his actual car, was being. Thanks, because there was something wrong with the brakes. The chauffeur, the chauffeur was working on the car. Back when you didn't need the computer to. Right. Well, see, back then your your chauffeur took care of your car. He was your auto mechanic. Yeah. So you know, you're rich enough to have a chauffeur. He better know how to fix cars too. You know. Yeah, and he knew where to put the blinker fluid in. Right. The the blinker fluid. yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of something. Man, I can't think tonight. <laughs> so at noon, they went to lunch, and they decided they would take their victim from the Harvard School. Now, very times before 5 p.m., they tried to find the perfect victim, but none appeared to them. And even at one point, they went and got went back to one of their houses and got a. Uh, they went back to Leopold's and got his binoculars he used for bird watching. So they could stand like a block away and like scan for the perfect victim. 
Did you see Monica shake her head on this, folks? It, it, it's something. It's just I me. Mean, I guess this is all part of why I'm still talking about him almost 100 years later, too. Well, um, one of our listeners, uh, Misty Dwyer, she took a course on these two in, in a criminal law class. Oh, well, yeah. So, I mean, that's why it's... Right. And and I I think it has more to do with uh, their defense, which we'll get into the next episode. Uh, yeah, I still think it would have... Like, in a book of Chicago um, yeah. crimes overall... I think it would still be, it would still garner more than a couple of lines. Oh, yeah, because um, as we'll talk about in the next episode, they had the famous attorney Clarence Darrow defending them. That's what I'm saying, even if they didn't have Darrow. Oh, no. No, if they didn't have Darrow. Yeah, it would still have been, like I said, at least in the the local interest books. Yeah. Chicago, it would still have been included with that. Right. At 5 p.m., as they were driving down Ellis Avenue, the pair saw Bobby Franks. Now, Bobby was the second cousin to Richard Loeb. Now, since he knew Loeb, it was easier to lure him into the car. And also, Bobby was Bobby had stayed after. He played baseball with some of the guys from school. Over, I think they played either in the sandlot next to the school or actually on the field. Which I would have loved. I would have loved to have seen like 1920s kids playing baseball in those school uniforms. You know, how were they even able to run? Kind of right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but still, you know, you guys, you know, some kids after school. Hey, want to play a game of baseball? Okay, yeah. You know, and you just went and played. Yeah. No one thought about. Oh, hey, you know, some strange pervert's going to pick you up off the street and kidnap you. Yeah, my slightly distant cousin, the pervert's going to come pick me up even more so. Right. I think every family has one. Well, maybe not pervert, but yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. So Loeb was in the driver's seat while Leopold was in the back. As they pulled up to Bobby, Loeb asked if he wanted to ride home. Bobby said, nah, I'm only a couple of blocks. I'll walk it, but he's like, Kate, hey, no, man, come in. Um, when you were over at the house yesterday, the other day, I, I was like really interested in tennis racket you were using. So that's what got him in the car. So Bobby climbed in, and once he got in the car, he introduced Bobby to, Le- to Leopold, and they took off down the street. Now, to this day, we're not exactly sure who dealt the killing blow, but the killer leaned over the front seat and struck Bobby in the right forehead. Then he struck Bobby over the left eye and dragged him over the seat. Two more blows were struck and a rag soaked in ether was shoved down his throat. Once that was done, the pair drove off to Wolf Lake. And the reason why I would say we don't know who did it is because, as we'll find out in the next episode, these two blamed each other. They agreed on everything up to who did the killing blow, and they pointed a finger at each other. That That's a crew for you right there, man. Now, along the route, the pair stopped to remove Bobby's shoes, socks, and pants. It was still light out, so they drove around with Bobby lying on the floor covered in a lap rug. Now, 
you know, as most people do, you get hungry. So the pair stopped and had some hot dogs for dinner. After 8.15, they arrived at Wolf Lake and went to the culvert. The pair finished undressing Bobby. Nathan put on the rubber boots and brought Bobby down to the culvert. Once there, he poured acid on Bobby's face and genitals and placed him in the culvert. Nathan then climbed out and he began to clean up. While doing this, he didn't notice his glasses had fallen out of his pocket or one of Bobby's socks had gotten caught in the underbrush. They bundled up Bobby's blood clothes in a lap rug. They drove off, stopping at a drugstore to look up the address to the Frank's residence. They attempted to call, but there was no answer. So the pair bought a stamp and mailed off the ransom note. Who is Bobby Franks? Bobby was the third child of Jacob and Flora Franks. He was a popular student at Harvard School and was not afraid to speak his mind on any subject. On the day he disappeared, his parents were getting ready to eat. Since Bobby had not arrived, they figured he was just running late. When dinner was finished and Bobby still had not returned, his parents began to get worried and started calling his friends. Jacob called Samuel Edelson for help. Samuel arrived after 9 p.m. Both men thought that it was possible that Bobby had gotten locked in the school, so they tracked down an administrator. But the men found the athletic director, and they went to check the school, where there was no sign of him. At 10.15, as Flora waited at home, the phone rang. When she answered, a voice said, your son is kidnapped. You will receive news in the morning. When Jacob returned home, he was told of the news. Then at 2 a.m., that's when they went to the police. The house became command central for the police and the search for Bobby Franks. At 9 a.m., the postman arrived with a ransom note. The note read, Dear Sir, as you no doubt know by this time your son has been kidnapped, allow us to assure you that he is at present well and safe. You need not fear any physical harm for him, provided you live up carefully to the following instructions and such others as you will, re- will receive by future communications. Should you, however, disobey any of instructions, even slightly, his death will be the penalty. One, for obvious reasons, make absolutely no attempt to communicate with either the police authorities or any private agency. Should you already have communicated with the police, allow them to continue their investigations, but do not mention this letter. Two, secure before noon today $10,000. This money must be composed entirely of old bills of the following denominations, $2,000 in $20 bills, $8,000 in $50 bills. The money must be old. Any attempt to include new R-marked bills will render the entire venture futile. Three, the money should be placed in a large cigar box or, if such is impossible, in a heavy cardboard box securely closed and wrapped in white paper. The wrapping paper should be sealed at all openings with sealing wax. Four, have the money thus prepared as directed above and remain at home after 1 o'clock p.m. See that the telephone is not in use. You will receive future communication instructing you as to your future course. As the final word of warning, this is a strictly commercial proposition, and we are prepared to put our threats into execution should we have reasonable ground to believe that you have committed an infraction of our instructions. However, 
should you carefully follow out our instructions to the letter, we can assure you that your site will be safely returned to you within six hours of our receipt of the money. Yours truly, George Johnson. Okay, now, before I continue on here, you kind of notice that this isn't like usual ransom notes. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, the police noticed that, too, because they're like... They're like, eh, we got the money. <laughs> well, money. you know, it's... It, deal, right? <laughs> it's usually like, you know, We've kidnapped your, you know, they noticed that this ransom note was written by someone with education. Well, yeah, well, that's on them, you know, like, just, like right. It's, it's, it's not like where that came from. It was like um, your favorite movie, Clueless, like if Cher wrote a, a ransom, like, um, I'm sorry, but yeah, but worse. <laughs> Oh, we'll just go with it. Oh, oh, you're right. Oh, God. What was that? Jeff used to call that um, my millennial voice. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I, I like kidnapped your son and like, I'm going to write a ransom note. Hey, but no, I, I mean, in, in noticing this, and especially the cops noticed it, that. Just like, wait, man, this is someone who's been an educated who wrote this letter. Yeah. And even me reading it, um, I need to type this up. I it, it, just the fact of the old bills. Oh, yeah, it was just like yeah, just throw money in. It was like, no, they have to be specific. Right. And I and you know, here we are talking about this like a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, why why old bills? Probably because they figure it'd be easier to, to, to trace you know, harder to trace. Yeah, you know, and the, probably bills you bills getting ready to be destroyed too. Yeah. So we're not sure how the press found all this out. You know, there there was a couple of reporters hanging out outside the Frank's house, so. Once the press knew about it, they were brought in and watched as best as they could because they kind of figured, well, okay, press is going to find out anyway, so let's let's bring them in. We can kind of keep an eye on what they're doing. Now, a few hours earlier, while all yes, I see why you gave me this part because you figure, oh, it's a Polish immigrant. I have a Polish last name. I should know how to say it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I just now realized that usually before we start to start to recording, we you know we go, hey, how'd you get this divided up? Well, she she tells me what paragraphs are mine, what are hers, and I just now realized she gave me the part with the Polish immigrant's name. Like I, she's like, yeah, he's got a Polish last name. He even knows how to say this stuff. I butcher English, okay? I, I just want to see you struggle with it. <laughs> Mr. Fusilet. <laughs> a. That's oh, why I kept person. that's why I kept calling him Bobby B. Uh-huh. I remember just I'm like, Bosolet, Bosolet, get it. I was like, oh my God. Do you even know me? I was like, like you could hear me too. <laughs> right. Well wait until wait until we get the Berkowitz. <laughs> That'll be fun. Right. Now, a few hours earlier, Polish immigrant Antoni Minkowski 
had just finished his night shift at the American Maze Products Company. Walking home near Wolf Lake, something caught his eye at the culvert. So he decided to see what it was. He climbed down in there and suddenly got scared out of his mind. He began to scream in Polish and wave down some men on a handcart, which I, oh, I wanted to see that. If I could go back in time and see any part of this whole case, I want to see an old Polish man out there screaming in Polish, flagging people down. Uh It's not a mannequin. It's not a mannequin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, finally, what actually, um, what triggered them to come down was, was he could actually say, like, come. So it's like, come, come. Yeah, I think if, like, see anybody, like, screaming their head off like that, probably, and, like, looking all freaked out, and, like, I don't care what language it is, you're probably going to be like, maybe just, like, should see what's going on. Uh, maybe we should keep going and not bother yeah, the man. Either, yeah. Either <laughs> right. Run away the other direction. Either investigate or just leave, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the men came over to see what the problem was and climbed down into the culvert. Once there, they found the body of a naked boy. Lying near the body was a pair of glasses. So the men took the body up to the handcart, covered covered it with a tarp, and put the glasses near the body. One of them went and got the police, so the police arrived. And what was nice was one of the cops was a Polish, um, was a Polish cop, so. He got to talk to Antuni to get his side of the story. Which I would have loved to have seen two Polish guys talking to each other. It it, it had to have been it had to have been something because my stepdad never I never spoke Polish. I don't even know if he even knew anything in Polish. But I don't know, something about hearing a foreign language is just kind of Interesting to me. So the police took their statements and then they took the body to a local funeral home. Word reached the newspapers that a body was found. The Chicago Daily News sent reporter Alvin Goldstein to verify the story. When he arrived, he described the body. I I should have put this in, but I'm going to say it now. He called the house. He called the Frank's house and said, okay, here's the body. He described it. But because the body was wearing the glasses that they found, it wasn't Bobby. Well, Edelson was like, "Eh, this doesn't sound quite right. So he got a hold of Jacob's brother-in-law, Edwin Grisham. He's like, hey, Ed, go down to the funeral home and check this out. So Ed went. And when he arrived, he was shown the body and yeah, he, he called the house and goes, yeah, it's Bobby. So after the family received the news, the phone rang. It was the kidnappers calling with the information for the drop-off. They were told that a cabin called for them and they were to go to the Van de Bogert and Ross drugstore and wait for a phone call. Well, despite all this confusion, no one wrote down the, no one wrote down the address of where they were supposed to go. So they hang up. A couple minutes later, cab driver arrived in. You know, I feel sorry for this poor man because he's like, "Hey, I'm supposed to pick you up. Where are you, where are you going? I don't know where the hell we're going. Who, who, who called the cab? 
Hey, hey, who called the cab? Anyone? Nah, man, no one called the cab here, but here, here's five bucks for your troubles. So they sent the cab away. Well, the, the boys had plotted this all out. So they figured that the time it would take to get there. They called the drugstore, asked if Jacobs was there, but the, the guy, the first time they called, the guy's like, nah, man, I just don't hear a name, Jacobs. Like, okay, well, they called again, and the clerk checked around, and he's like, no, there's no Jacobs here, so they hung up. Now, that night, they held a small press conference outside the, the Jacobs' house. Edelson made a statement for the family while the state's attorney, Robert Crow opened a file on the case and began collecting evidence. At this moment, the police had very few clues. From what they knew, it had been someone in the neighborhood, someone Bobby knew. The best clue they had for now was the glasses found near Bobby's body. On Friday, May 23rd, reporter Howard Mayer stopped by the Zeta Beta Tall Fraternity House. Several people were there, including Lube giving his thoughts on what happened. Loeb got the reporters gathered there to go with him on a search of drugstores along 63rd Street. I'm sorry. It was like such a narcissistic thing to do. You know, it, it is. And I've noticed in other cases that the if, if the killers aren't caught right away, they like to inject themselves into the crime. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, be a part of the search party looking for the body. That, that seems to be the big one. Yeah. Like, look here. Look at this clue. Uh-huh. It was rainy and the reporters didn't want to go, but Loeb insisted. Yeah, that's another like red flag right there going, me, look at me. I'm a red flag. Yeah, but have you ever been in a Chicago rain? You don't want to go out in it. <laughs> I've never have been, so I guess, like, yeah, I'll go with the expert there. <laughs> right. You, because out here, I don't know how it is out, out on your side of the country. Uh-huh. It could be like, it could be a little drizzle here. And then within a minute, you're in a, a torrential downpour. Yeah, not as often, apparently, as in Chicago. But, yeah, have experienced that. In the search, they found the Van de, Bo- de Bogart and Ross drugstore. I would have just been like, yeah, we're going to do something called the Van D and Ross. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not sure where's exactly how long 63rd Street runs in Chicago. Uh-huh. But like I said in the last one, you know, they were like in a very Jewish neighborhood. So people know how to say it. <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, and the thing is, I don't even know if this drugstore is still standing. Yeah, probably. Uh, it's probably gone by now. Yeah, it's like a guys. it's like a CVS or a Walgreens or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. The clerk confirmed that a phone call for Jacobs had been received there. Lowe was ecstatic that he helped find the drugstore, but one of his name kept out of the papers. Red flag. See, they didn't know that stuff back then. I know, like they're the original red flags, you know, like, ah, right. remember this, because of this guy being <laughs> stupid, yeah, this right. guy, ah, yeah. Right, the, the paper trail of stupid starts here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the 
the way back to the frat house, reporters began to ask him about Bobby Franks. What he said next was chilling. He was quoted as saying, if I was to kill anyone, it would be Bobby. It's like, okay, dude. I'd, yeah, I would have been like, okay, um, what do you know? Uh-huh. When the coroner's inquest began, Loeb invited himself along to hear the details. The coroner ruled the death of suffocation based on the rag being found in Bobby's throat. Police began to focus on Bobby's teachers, but they were ruled out. Police began searching around Wolf Lake, asking the groundskeepers if there had been anyone around before the death. Nathan Leopold's name came up in the investigation. The police went to ask him some questions. Leopold said he often went out there bird watching, and sometimes he took others along. When asked about his glasses, he said he had them in the house, but couldn't find them. The glasses are the clue that placed Leopold there. The police began searching the different stores in Chicago that sold glasses. The glasses had a special hinge, which was only sold in three shops in Chicago. One of the shops that sold the glasses to Leopold. When the police explained this, Leopold said they must have fallen out of his pocket last time he was out bird watching. While investigating the house, the police found a bottle of ether, strychnine, and arsenic, two unlicensed revolvers, and a typewriter. A maid had entered the room and said she had seen a portable typewriter a few days ago, but it was missing. That's the part when, like, the maid walks and says that you're, like, standing there going, shut up, shut up. What's your your Christmas bonus? Or or your Hanukkah bonus, right? Shut up. Warming. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Leopold was a suspect. Both men were brought in for questioning in places, oh, and placed in separate rooms. At first, Loeb couldn't remember the planned alibi they were to use, but then he remembered. Um, we're supposed to do this. Crowd wasn't buying the story. The evidence was building. One woman had come forward and told the police her and her daughter were almost run down by a car matching the description of the one the boys rented. An officer of foot patrol brought in a chisel that was taped up that had been tossed out a window of a speeding car the night of the murder. Once this was presented to Loeb, he turned pale and began to confess. When Leopold found out Loeb confessed, he began confessing as well. Yeah. Also with the glasses, wasn't one guy was like out of the country of the three glasses, he was like, yeah, or out of the area, yeah. And the woman, they said like, "Oh, you have the glasses," and she was basically like, "Yeah, they're right over here. See them?" Right. Yeah. He was like, "I don't know where they are. I, I, I yeah, I bought them, but um, right. I, I don't know where they are." So Leopold kept trying to to stall them on it, yeah. and um, I'll put this in. I, I should have put it in, but I'll say it now. It's like. They're like, okay, well, they fell out of your pocket. Can you show us how it happened? Oh yeah, I, that's what I would want to see. And they said every time we tried to like do every single pratfall, like, right? The, the dudes like that never fell out. <laughs> like, you know, somersaults, pratfalls. Yeah. You know, that's, it could the st- it could have been part of the Jesse White tumblers and uh huh. Got him and Fatty Hardbuckle. <laughs> well, the, the thing, is, and and that's the thing is, like those glasses stayed in, and everyone was sitting there going, "Yeah, they fell out, right? Sure." Yeah, it's like well, now 
at the time of the questioning, they didn't take him to the police house. They they took him to like a one of the nicer hotels in Chicago. Well, yeah, because he's so rich. I mean, but that's another thing. If you're gonna kill somebody, like at least like don't be like the special rich and be like, oh, these are fancy glass. Oh, special hinge. Get the hinge everybody else has. <laughs> I'll make it so easy. I mean, three, I mean, even back then. It's like not no computerized records, none of this. It's literally like three people. I mean Well, written records that you know they looked them up, all right. Uh-huh. And and that is a suspect tip for Monica. Yeah. <laughs> Tune in next week when we have more. But it, it's it's amazing that, you know, and and these guys were held before they went to jail, they were actually held in hotel rooms. Oh uh, yeah. Well, uh-huh. And the family was allowed to bring them meals from their favorite restaurants and their silk pajamas they could wear at night. Uh-huh. Well, I think like the John Binet too. I mean, that was I mean not the suspect thing, but that like every, all the friends and people into the house while she was still missing. It was like basically another party going on in there. Like, oh yeah, you're your friends come on in, touch everything around here. Right. No. You know, it hasn't gotten any smarter. No, no. I mean, you know, the more I look at different crimes to cover for us, you know, the more I see that criminality has not gotten any smarter. No. Criminals have stayed pretty fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, the police department is not that much smarter. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it just depends on where you're at, you know? Uh, another attempt. Oh, an extra one. If you're going to commit a crime, commit in a small town, too. Right. Where they have, right? Not these big cities. Where they... Well, it, it, I mean, they it's... They have a guy in a trench coat run. Cause... Right. Unless it's me. No. Well, I was going to say with Columbo, though, because he's going to figure it out anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. Well, we'll talk about that when we do Columbine, but um, I had a black black duster at the time. Oh, great. Yeah. And my ex-wife was like, I was like wearing it right after the Columbine shooting. She's like, don't do that. People think you're going to be a shooter. I'm like, okay, first of all, I was wearing black trench coats. No, I was... I was twenty sixteen and had just been born. Yeah. So she was about a year old. You yeah, you have looked too old anyway. There was only the high school kids. Well, I said, first of all, people thought I was gonna shoot up my high school to begin with. So Mm -hmm. I'm ahead of the curve there. And two, I was wearing black trench coats before these two little sons of bitches ruined it. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like you're also like you people could tell like you weren't right. High school. I still want to get man, I miss that coat. Yeah, because I mean, like a lot of my friends back in high school, they all had the trench coats. Right. Of course, we had already graduated. Right. No, I I had a. I had it. My father, when we were actually on speaking terms, Mm -hmm. gave me this very nice black duster that I wanted when I visited him in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I had a. I had pinned on it a replica Arizona Territory Marshal's badge. Loved it. Well, apparently I ticked off my father and he, he took the coat from me. Yeah. And 
you know, I I had the badge on as a de- decoration. He thought it was like you know a badge of authority, and he's like, "I'm stripping you of you." I was like, "You're you're crazy. Just go." I still want to get a black duster. Well, no, I got a new badge. Well, I are coming back supposedly. Huh? Well, I got a, I picked up a badge in Gettysburg that I want to put on it. Okay. My official brothel inspector badge. Oh, cute. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it, it was one of those instances where the souvenir picked me. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm looking through a display case. My son's looking at, like, mini balls and stuff picked up off the field. I'm looking at these badges and I see this one that says official brothel inspector. I'm like, how much? Uh-huh. Seven bucks? Sold. Uh-huh. It is. It, I love it. But we're going to wrap this one up, folks. Um, join us next week. We'll wrap up Leopold and Loeb. You know, next week we're going to talk about the trial and I. I got to look into it because the, the trial is real. Inter- the trial is still being taught today. In, in uh, like classes for lawyers and shit. Um, I, I can't remember the exact name of the like one of our listeners said she studied it in a, in a law class. So, yeah, it, it's still being taught today. So if you're looking for us out there, you know, find us on Spotify, Podbean, Castbox. Uh, join us on the Facebook page. We have fun there. We try to. When I remember to put an episode out, I, I got to get myself on a schedule for that. I, I honestly do. We got the schedule for this, at least. That, yeah. Right. We we got the we got the night for recording. It's just whenever Scott feels like putting the show out. Yeah. So, well, I kind of figure if that you know get this the schedule for this, and then it just right. I'm 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 trying to shoot for like a Saturday release date for the shows. Uh-huh. That way, I can come in do come into my little library here and. Do that and um, do homework too. Shit. So, for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica. <laughs>